Welcome, everybody, to a very special Mokna or Mokya Super Show episode of Current Events. My name is Max Cohen. I will be one of your hosts for, I don't know what we're calling this, Let's for the moment keep calling it Current Events. I'll be one of your hosts today and joining me as he does for every episode of Current Events. That would be Colborn Bell, founder of the Museum of Crypto Art. Colborn, you doing okay? Uh, sick as a dog, but maybe... Uh... My sickness will bring some positivity to my mochias. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, well intentioned. Between your sickness and my uh, crappy mic, that hopefully this is the last episode people have to uh, bear with me for. Uh, we will have one set of positive audio between us. So, uh, honestly, better than most podcasts. Seriously. Um, so we have a bunch of topics to get to. It's been a couple of weeks since we've done a current events. So I wanted to just kind of collect all sorts of things that have happened in the last couple of weeks or so. We're going to go through each of them. You know, one of the hallmarks of the current events podcast is a lack of preparation, not in the sense that we don't know what we're talking about, but in the sense that we're going to talk about topics without maybe a bit of prepared remarks. We want to go off the dome. We want to go based on how we're really feeling. We're going to apply that today to something we've trialed a bit in the past, which is Mokya or Mokna, basically just going to talk about a topic, and then we're going to decide if it's a Mokya for each of us or a Mokna, and uh, I'll let you just kind of interpret what that means for yourself. So Colborn, let's jump right in, huh? Let's do it, Max. All right. My very first Mokya or Mokna. A lot of these, I kind of have a sense of what you might say, but this one, I'm not sure. Wow. So, uh, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw the release of Apple's Vision Pro. Colborn, you and I spoke about this on the podcast uh, last year when it was announced. I had a chance to try a Vision Pro for myself. Um, I was very lucky to have one in my orbit, and I found it pretty pretty revolutionary and there's a lot to talk about so right off the bat thoughts about vision pro i don't know have you gotten a chance to use it yourself i don't have any nor was i particularly excited to try it um so maybe it's best if we start with your feelings you you tell us tell the people your experience so very early mokna of apple vision pro gen one it's clunky it's super buggy. It doesn't work very well. The capabilities are wicked limited. Um, it has like a three-hour battery life. You have to carry around a battery pack. Honestly, just don't see very many uses for it right now. But the th- way that I thought about it immediately and which I keep thinking about it as is the Apple Vision Pro is a crystal ball. And for me, for the first time, especially as somebody who has been engaged so much with the metaverse through folks at Mocha, like Untitled XYZ and uh, Renee, our CTO, like knowing so much about the metaverse and, you know, and being Colborn at your, um, at your home and, and walking through the museum for the first time in VR, you know, you start to dream up all these capabilities for VR, AR, metaverse stuff. This is the first time that I felt like I could see the future of how this is going to develop. I could understand how we're going to interact with it. I could understand how we're going to move through these virtual spaces. All you know, Being able to move through a version of the web that is even partially made spatial, mm. having different you know, 
different web pages, different apps open within your actual physical space, being able to open, be able to launch sculptures and artworks into a digital space that has limitless room, that has infinite capacity for change. All of these things are kind of teased within the Vision Pro. It's super expensive. Like I said, it's clunky, but you can see where we're going so clearly, even if we're maybe still five, 10 years away from where that is. Um, so that's kind of an encapsulation of what I felt about it. Have you heard from others who have gotten their hands on it, like similar things? Uh, yeah. You know, I've seen a lot of the NBA app. I've seen, I don't, you know, I have mixed feelings that I don't really want to share, but, you know, I'll say a week ago I was in kind of the, perhaps the inverse of the Apple Vision Pro, which is that new Sphere project in Las Vegas. Uh-huh. Uh, and that is a major mokia for, I think, like how big of a, a failure it's going to be. Jeez. <laughs> Way to fucking hide the, hide the mokia behind the mokia. Yeah, because yeah, that was so wild. People were like losing their ish from vertigo. The woman behind me was like, done and dusted like in her chair could not stand up they had to evacuate the whole row so the emt could get to her it was it was really really wild when we begin to consider like the future (laughs) of of, uh uh fully immersive entertainment experiences so why was it so why why do you think it's going to fail so spectacularly i mean you know it's one it's it's kind of just like a glorified movie screen. I think the outside is cool and it's great for advertising and I'm sure, but the inside was, it was uh, so vertical and it was mm. so, it was so disorienting. It was, you know, I'm, I'm an experienced, maybe I'm probably, I would consider myself an experienced experiencer. Yeah. Um, and it, this is not something that people are going to be able to handle. Mm. Much less the the way it was programmed. I mean, it was beautiful. If we had this thing, we could do just absurd, crazy, but like you two mixed with the art, they had really no idea what they're doing. And I get they're kind of beta testing it. and But it's clear that they don't know. And it's clear that people are getting sick. And I think it's clear to me that they have like a real problem on their hands which could be the same thing as the apple vision pro in that we kind of collectively have this idea of where we want to go as far as immersion and what the future of experiences are uh Mm. but maybe at this point we're like pushing the bounds so far beyond our capabilities to like be human I think it's a really pregnant point uh, and a really pointed point because something that I noticed and, and, you know, I don't think I'm quite as experienced as you are with VR, especially, uh, but, you know, I've, I've owned my Oculuses. I've played with them. You know, obviously I use the vision pro a fair amount more than most people I would say. And something that's universal, not just in my experience, but in the people around me is just kind of like the sense of, like you said, disorientation, headaches are really common um this kind of like distortion of reality once you finish taking it off it's kind of unpleasant it's almost like you're cross-eyed afterwards there is a possibility that biologically we are just not able to 
continued to increase the capacity and closeness of screens that at a certain point it has like an immediate and uncomfortable physiological reaction. And maybe that doesn't, maybe it doesn't matter if it's strapped on your head. Maybe it has to do with this vertigo inducing height and the closeness of something that is unreal kind of overlaid atop the real. But this is how, this is how people also were with when cars first came about. <laughs> you know, like they couldn't drive. The streets had to be like 100 feet wide. They'd still run into people all the time. Maybe our irons just aren't. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, you movement. know, I, I think people have a, an uncanny ability to adapt. But Listen, honey, I'm no heart surgeon. I don't know how I'm supposed <laughs> to keep my arms straight long enough to get all the way down the road. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, that's a fair point. Um, yeah, it's a it's a complicated topic. It's a giant topic. I mean, we spent an entire podcast talking about it last year, just when it was announced on the possibilities, and that we're you know playing around with it now is crazy. But I do think that anyone who has an opportunity to try one of these out, whether that's going to an Apple store and just playing with it, or someone they know might have one, uh, or they get invited somewhere where there's a demo, absolutely get front of line for that because. I think more than just the capability of seeing these screens so large in front of your eyes and so close is how you're interacting with the digital environment, how it knows where your eyes and your hands are and how you're using these kind of already ingrained movements to navigate uh, digital space. That I think is what's really interesting to me. I still believe very strongly in the spatial web, even if it's not necessarily something that we are affixing right into our eyes, like in a contact lens, but there is a kind of brilliance to dancing around with virtual, I'm sorry, digitally native processes that you are controlling with like physiological um, interaction. It's, it's really quite bizarre. So I give it a Mokia and a Mokna at the same time, Mokna for now, Mokia for later. Um, Colborn, I'd be super curious to hear your thoughts if you get your hands on one of these. Yeah, I should I should probably get in there. If you know the thing is is <laughs> I uh you know, I I love seeing the museum in VR. Mm -hmm. Right? I don't need whatever spatial computing to go look at a mocha room because I'd rather be walking around in some world. Yeah. I'd rather have that full immersion. Mm -hmm. So you know, do I need to see some of these GLB files, some of these sculptures in front of me like that? It it loses for me the activity. Everything that I've seen is kind of like a conk back, watch six NBA games at once while you scroll Twitter on your couch. Yeah. And even Metageist had this post shortly after it came out talking about um, AR sculpting and how the AR sculpting that's available on the Vision Pro right now is you know like six years out of date but it's so impressive because most people have never seen anything like that before um right we also have like apple store conversations that we're going to have to deal with you know will like if mocha creates an awesome app that lets people go through the museum and a vision pro would it ever be allowed on a um app store if we don't you know give major licensing fees or um i cannot licensing licensing of our iconography to apple like that's a whole nother conversation but um maybe one we should have at more length in the near future yeah that's a good idea all right mokiar mokna the next one this one's perhaps a little bit easier to figure out well maybe not 
Um, so this was spurred by Ana Maria Caballero, the wonderful uh, crypto art poet, uh, selling her poem Chord at Sotheby's for 6,000 USD. So I thought this was important for two reasons. One, it's pretty awesome to see somebody like Ana Maria, who kind of is a universally high approval rating crypto art, does work the right way, is really thoughtful, is really creative. Somebody that is maybe a bit outside of like this edified top 50 crypto artists that always seems to be represented at these Christie's and Sotheby's sales. Um, nice to see her getting some recognition. Kudos to Ana Maria Caballero. Um, hope for more success. But also this communicates to me that these institutions are clearly here to stay. Um, we are now past the point of seeking out board apes and crypto punks for these auction houses to sell exclusively, although we'll talk about Etherox in a second. Um, we are now past the point of just seeking out these artists who are capable of selling for 100K plus uh, sales. These auction houses are now starting to seem to have more of an interest in smaller, less notorious artists. And I just think that there's a lot to talk about within this new paradigm where these are not maybe institutions that are either just dipping their toe into crypto art and are not just net negative for crypto art, but that they are just institutions that are now going to be a part of the fabric here. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think of this whole kind of, I guess, solidification on multiple economic slash artistic levels of auction houses like Christie's and Sotheby's within crypto art? Well, look, we knew that they were kind of planting their flag in the ground when they launched their own native platforms, mm. right? That's like, we want to compete. We want to be here. We recognize this as a major new vertical such that we're going to build, you know, a brand new website around it. Both of them did that. You know, I think probably Anna Maria might be bigger than you presume her to be. I think she is ubiquitous i think between her and sasha styles top selling nft poets of our time certainly um yeah i think if there you know if there wasn't the demand for the work then it wouldn't be there to begin with sure um so the question is how do i feel now that i mean this is <laughs> you know welcome to the bear market war of attrition Right, where where generally the good spirited people uh run out of runway and are forced to go do something else since um you know the the larger dollar signs, the later incumbents, the people it's it's the classic saying, you know, the what is it, the pioneers get slaughtered and, and the settlers win. Mm. If you are on the front line, you are going to lose. Yeah. I I have come to accept that. Um because there are forces that are bigger and more organized and, you know, it takes an, only an individual <laughs> can be the person that's out there on the bleeding edge taking that risk. And, you know, in, in my mind, that is, that is the goal of the, you know, the artist philosopher uh, who is looking at, you know, these problems and where we're going and trying to communicate that back bigger and better and you know all these kind of market makers what they're doing is amplifying that message mm. you know this plays into the next uh, i guess the interrelated topic of sotheby's very very um loudly selling an ether rock um and then hiding the bids and then from other bidders and then hiding the final bidder's price from the world 
although I believe an Ether Rock was sold for like 275 ETH within this time frame, so it was likely the same one. But something that I thought was interesting from that, and which I think plays into this larger conversation, is the fact that we are now having, I think, more people are having at more length conversations about what it means to have these institutions here. Because for the first time I was seeing people, I believe like Eric P. Rhodes um, wrote very thoughtfully about this, talking about how these institutions are here to make money for themselves. And in doing that, they will highlight certain artists and such, but not to look at them as tastemakers in maybe the way that we had been previously, that they are financial institutions, things that you and I have been saying for months and months now, things that people have been recognizing for months and months now, but maybe weren't a part of the like immediate upfront cultural understanding of a Sotheby's and a Christie's. They are not here to discover new artists. They are not here to uplift the space. They are here as financial actors and having them a part of the space, even begrudgingly requires an understanding of what their hope here is to do. And I kind of do think that it's important that when, when they do things like, you know, sell an Ana Maria Caballero, poem for $6,000 and we get to have a conversation about, you know, the value of NFT poetry. That is wonderful when we have to have these conversations about the cultural value of an ether rock as seen through the um, upsold lens of Sotheby's in their tweets. That's not as awesome, but at least like these are institutions that purposefully or not are introducing new conversations to us by being ubiquitous, by being like within everyone's sights. Look, uh, the thing is, there's there's a couple things here. Also, it makes the the market not seem as dire as it might be. Mm-hmm. Kind of like forcing an auction. A lot of these, as I recall, uh, on the Sotheby's Grails uh, auction and on the Christie's curated charity auction by Nina Roars. Um, I was bidding and, you know, I have dabbled in a couple other times before, uh, but, you know, that's been uh, progressive. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly there and watching and, and trying to, to see, you know, what's going on because it's very public and it's, it is, uh, it's could could be one of like the largest now signals that we have to the state of the the top of this market. Well, if, if I might stop you real quick, you know, the made the rounds this week. I got a ton of um, a ton of play, but Brian Brinkman had a tweet that said, uh, "quote It may feel like we are back when we see big art drops minting hundreds of ETH on a weekly basis, but the overall sentiment amongst Web three artists right now is down bad." And I think that something like Sotheby's, Christie's, whoever it is that is, like you just said, coming in and drawing our attention to these big sales somewhat changes our perception of reality. And the reality hasn't really changed, but we are all looking at the same, you know, the same channel. It's like there's a war going on outside, but the TV is playing The Bachelor. So we think everything's okay because we're all watching The Bachelor. You know, if it, the, the problem is, is if you want to play in a market, Dada has told us this again and again, you're playing in a star system. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, uh, as as great and, you know, egalitarian as we want this to be, the fact is, is that the market perverts and it pushes uh, the people who have built an economic narrative around their name. Mm. 
Yeah, but that includes Chesapeake and Christie's, and I and I, I and I. I, I mean, wanna... they are they are the ones that are that are picking the the economic winners. So this is not about kind of like taste making at the bottom anymore. But I think that in 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 picking the winners, they are also creating a star system around themselves. Right, we are at a point when platforms and corporations are themselves players within this ecosystem because we affix to them you know the same kind of trust and personality and accolade that we do to individuals they're, they're like affixing themselves with the same star system principle as the artists that they're choosing and it's this kind of like symbiotic relationship look right now crypto art is dead you look at these people these were all for the most part digital artists before nfts mm-hmm. So, you know, there we have to go back and rediscover what crypto art means. It's not sufficient anymore to just make an NFT, right? Because now anybody and everybody can do that. And there's been countless platforms that have made it, you know, accessible and mainstream to be able to do that. So transition period for sure. Yeah. Um, So Mokia or Mokna? (laughs) Um, I might have come full circle and this might be, a this is going to be a Mokia. I was thinking that too. I think it's also a Mokia for me. It lays things bare and it forces us to have conversations. And if we're going to be in this crazy cycle, we might as well have a reason to uh, interrogate it a little bit. So Mokia for us both. It's not, it's not the artists I care about. It's not the work that I generally want to see featured. There's, there's, I don't want to say, you know, it's not all, but that's okay. Yeah. All right. Next Mokyar Mokna topic, something you are eminently familiar with, Crypto the Game. I've stopped hearing as much about it in the last uh, week or so. Um, I know you were involved. I'd just love to know your experience from the inside. Um, what was it like playing in this thing that <laughs> caught a lot of people's attentions and seemed pretty uh, dramatic? Yeah. So for people that don't know, this was a, a game... Um akin to digital online survivor in which 410 individuals linked to their Twitter profiles to this game. And there was 10 mm, daily rounds of immunity challenges and 10 nightly eliminations getting down to one winner. Did you win? Um, I did not win. I was, I think there was about 130 people left and I got, Somebody snipe voted me in the last seconds and all the ties. Whatever. Did I did I win? <laughs> uh <laughs> it was really about the friends we made along the way. Yeah, kind of. Although it was it was incredibly intense, incredibly political. The best strategy was definitely to like hang out in the back, say nothing, and don't do well at the games. And you know, at the end of it, I think about all the time spent and it, what did it lead to? It led to hurt feelings. It led to me playing a lot of Pac-Man and Flappy Bird. Uh, it led me to, you know, participating in puzzles that, you know, I, I had probably zero chance of solving with <laughs> how, you know, intelligent and coordinated uh, the crypto community writ large is and how much they seemingly cared about this. Um, does it scale? No, I don't, I don't really think so. Does it go anywhere? No, I don't think so. Wasn't an experience. Absolutely. 
did I meet some new people? Yeah, it you know it did for sure remind me that the space is filled with some of the brightest, most brilliant, kind, considerate people, and there's so many of us. And this was a wonderful cross section of crypto, uh, and it also reminded me how you know kind of technical we lean, mm. and you know the biggest mokia was the winner. Was a, a Japanese player used Google Translate to did not speak English. Used Google Translate to communicate. Would just you know I was lucky enough to be on a similar tribe as them, mm. and this person was just like kind, sweet, considerate. Would write these long poems about like team unity and sticking together. You know the pot wasn't split. That was important for me. I didn't want to see you know like half the people get their money back and somebody have to whatever yeah do we know who won yeah somebody mfw i think shout out mfw congratulations yeah. which would have been my it was my choice good so altogether sounds like an interesting experience is it a mokia or is it a mokna uh yeah it's a mokia i wonder if i wonder i think they'll probably try and do it again and realize that it doesn't scale and people love chaos man Mm. They love chaos. I probably will not be playing again. Um, <laughs> You're one and done. Yeah, that was like a, a monster productivity sinkhole. Uh, but, you know, if you've got a week to waste. Mm. <laughs> and, Why not? And yeah, and you love, you know, politicking, uh, knowing that ultimately your politicking is what is going to get you eliminated, then go for it. So another couple of Mokia and Mokinas for you. These are um, these are both sales that I thought were interesting and at least noteworthy. Okay, so the first sale I was thinking that I wanted to talk about was uh, another sector, which is a piece by Bato. Bato being the uh, Quasimondo Mario Klingemann spearheaded community input generative AI. I don't know if that does a great job of explaining it, but it uses community input in a DAO format to... Uh, whittle down a bunch of automatically created pieces um, and then uses those pieces to teach itself what art is, what beautiful art is, then continues to create pieces. So that's what Bado is. And one of the very first pieces that Bado created, one of the first 15 in January of 2022, another sector, sold for 41 ETH uh, the other week. And the reactions afterwards were pretty vitriolic. Um, yeah. This is not an aesthetically beautiful piece. It is early AI work. It's not early AI work in that it was from 2018, 2019, but it was early looking AI work, uh, very fuzzy, um, very abstract, but it had the historical importance affixed to it of any AI work today that is seen as historical in any sense. But people were pretty pissed, um, especially your classic folks who don't do a lot of AI work, uh, especially your really advanced AI work folks who didn't understand why it was this piece that managed to capture $90,000 in volume. Um, I thought it was a very interesting conversation that was being had about historical mm. provenance, about the aesthetics of AI, about judging aesthetic quality with AI. Um, I thought it was a big moke, yeah, just because love to see money changing hands in this space, love Botto, love Mario Klingemann, um, and love anything that's going to spark a like hyper emotional conversation within crypto art. What did you think of this moment? Did you have any opinions on the sale or the piece? Uh, and is it a Mokia or a Mokna? 
Uh, I will say one, first off, I really don't care how people spend their money. Uh, everybody is certainly entitled to spend their money in the way that they wish. I will add that I think Botto as a concept, as an ongoing art project, has real legs and legitimacy, and we are going to continue to see um, this artist or this collective or this you know, artificial intelligence grow and change. And, you know, in that guaranteed expansion is an implied scarcity of these early pieces. So, you know, it's, it's, it's here to stay. I, I know, you know, very few of these have come onto the market and that is just speaks to a, a wonderful collector set uh, at a very high price point. And kind of the the nice thing about having a non-human artist is is almost there's no human to fuck it up. Yeah, no, um, nobody direct your vitriol at. Right. So this collective thing, whatever it is, will continue to do its thing. And you know, I hate the piece aesthetically. It's hideous. <laughs> aesthetically, it's really really bad. I was thinking that too. <laughs> But, you know, there is a community curation element to this. So I don't know. I don't know. I've, you know, I've participated in Bado. You know, we know people are going back and hunting AI work. We continue to see every day. AI is going to change everything. Our lives in the next five years will be unrecognizable to our lives today. And yeah, we say that every week on this podcast. And I hope that's every week, man, I'm, I, <laughs> I, there's like almost nothing there's there's an anxiety in trying to even prepare or be aware or obviously we saw open ai drop sora mm. this week and just look at the difference that two years makes this is two years apart yeah i didn't even put that in there because i was like there's no way we can wrangle that topic within this time frame Right. Do you see how quickly things are changing? Like we cannot, as people, even keep up with the current events. Yeah. In this very, very niche, uh, <laughs> right? Like a niche of a niche. That's why I like what we're doing here. There's a there's an optimistic futility in everything we do here and all of like the conversations we have because it's all going to be out of date. Everything we say and do, especially all these AI episodes, all these AI discussions, yeah. they're all going to be out of date in two years. Like everything's going to move way faster than any of us are capable of understanding. But it's like it's kind of fun anyway. Yeah, just... but everything will everything will exponentiate, mm -hmm. right? To the point of where you know the greatest luxury will be to try and interpret anything as it's exponentiating. I consider what we do every week here to be like an incredible luxury. Totally. Because I never take the time to to process these things. And I'm sure most people are way too wrapped up busy in their lives to try and process these things. So when something like this happens, which could be a one-off, it could be, but it's just, you know, it's it's not, it's set in stone. It's not like the lost Robbies, you know, sold for two hundred, three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars and are, you know, now so much cheaper. Mm -hmm. These things are just inaccessible. And you know, I've been wrestling with the idea of, you know, what does it mean to have all of these ego assets? And do I really like want to attach any identity to it? Mm. I think, you know, I think the museum is a wonderful place. But if you're not speculating, what are you doing? Don't have an answer to that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've I've had this question for a while of, 
what does it mean to properly steward and talk about like the works that I have and care about? Uh, but less and less, I find myself a backwards looking past oriented nostalgia type person mm. because everything is changing so fast in the present that if you're, if you're not like trying to get one step ahead on this future, then I don't know. So this is, <laughs> it, it, it's crazy because it almost reduces the images to like a, a scrapbook. I thought of that a lot as well. Like just the idea of purchasing, collecting this artwork, just to remind yourself of uh, something, right? Just to not be lost in the stream. Right. Not necessarily to pick something markers. Up. Yeah, just markers of yourself, what you liked, something you saw, markers of a moment, markers of, it's hard when we're talking about like collections of different sizes, right? Because you know you have these like massive, massive collections and the part of me thinks it'd be hard at some point to like pick out anything from those. But, you know, I can tell you like my Spotify saved songs. You know, there's like six, 700 songs in there. And I know yeah. if half of them, more than half of them, as soon as I hear it, I know where I was when I heard it for the first time, you know, what it's sandwiched between tells a story of like what I was thinking, what I was feeling. So there's real, real weight to that. So the crazy thing is, is uh, I've been thinking a lot about just identity and identity formation and what it might mean to be post identity, like so fluid that you're not attached to anything of of who you are or how you define yourself yeah and very buddhist yeah yeah i mean ultimately right we've we've attached so much of our identity to stuff and these things and we are perceived through the stuff and the things this is not any any new concept but pretty soon i think there will be like a general level of a much higher general level of access to knowledge and sophistication and, and power and tools. And, uh, you know, it's just going to all look so different that if you are not as flexible and nimble and, and it's kind of this stuff that holds you back or these formations of identity around the stories that you tell yourself about yourself, that you just will not be able to keep up with the pace that people who have moved past identity it's the the old chinese finger trap analogy right it's like the harder you try to affix some kind of identity for yourself the more trapped you are unable to actually find an identity for yourself and you kind of have to let go of these things i mean this is something i speak about with a friend of mine how millennial parents who are having kids are naming their kids such ridiculous things in the hopes of affixing them with some kind of unique identity um all you know, there's way less like Michaels, Peters, Jennifers, um, Alexas in the world now. There's all sorts of like crazy names. I know, I know a Sonata. I know Auroras. I know all sorts of different like less traditional names because parents, especially like millennials, who have understood what the internet does to identity and how it like throws your identity around and makes you feel somewhat like a statistic. Yeah, how you like seek out some kind of less traditional marker of like, well, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? It's not what I own. It's not my job title. You know, you go on LinkedIn, you see a million people with the same job title, a million people with these same, like, you know, hopped up on caffeine verbs to describe themselves. You know, the senior risk assessment officers, the asset management consultation intern oversight committee manager, like, (laughs) 
that was a mouthful. You know what I mean though, right? Like, <laughs> I, t- I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Like the more we like writhe in place to try and give ourselves some kind of marker of unique identity, we end up just diving further and further into this like crisis of forced individuality. And like none of this stuff is going to matter. None of the titles are going to matter. You just have to give it all up and then see what you're, what you're left with. Mokia to uh, giving it all up identity-wise and seeing what you're left with because it'll happen to you eventually. But there's like the, the, the Buddhist um, idea that I come back to over and over again. You know, you are not your mind. You are not your body. You are not your emotions. What are you? Um, and we can apply that to like <laughs> everything on the internet. You know, you're not your job title. You're not your NFTs. You're not your art. What are you? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. I'm glad we went in this direction. We can cap the podcast at this. I had a couple more, but we can just save them for next week. I don't care. Um, we can we can run them quick. Whatever you want to do. I'm pretty sure I know how you feel about uh, Yuga buying the proof IP and the team. Bro, so uh, stupid. Yeah, there you go. See? <laughs> oh, God. All we needed to get to it in one sentence. I figured um, we'd get there, yeah. Yeah, I figured we need to spend exactly 30 seconds on it and be like, wow, this is uh, pathetic and weak. It's okay. It's all A16Z money. Is it? I think so. I think A16Z put like $50 million into proof and then whatever hundreds of millions of dollars they put into Yuga. And they just consolidate the brand and cut costs. And, you know, this is... Bringing the boys um, back home. Yeah, this is, you know, this is conceptually, I think, much more interesting than Christie's and, and Sotheby's. You know, Kevin Rose, who, you know, notorious grifter, absolutely shit on that community. Kevin Rose and uh, Kevin Fell, didn't he? You know, gets a bit of a redemption arc. And I don't know, man. Dark, dark. It's just dark. I don't know. You know, I just don't know who or what is getting out of this. I don't know who or what is getting out of this. Remains to be seen. I saw some very smart people talking about how it was an opportunity for uh, Yuga to offload some stock for some hard cash in their balance sheet. I don't know what they'll do with that hard cash. But <laughs> did, did Proof still have cash? Is that what happens? Um, maybe their IP just... is worth something, and I don't know. I honestly no. Come on, we can't. We can't keep. We can't keep this game up. Goodwill and fucking IP on the balance sheet. <laughs> I don't know. We can't keep it up. Maybe Yuga can. Uh, Although it just seems like another taller card, another card placed in this massive house of cards of just like an increasingly large web of NFT assets. Yeah, this goes back to also like what Animoca is doing and the continual one brand creep on, you know, us as a, you know, <laughs> as a perhaps indie institution yeah. versus just all of this balance sheet games and, and capital games and um you know there's there's levels to this at the very least it's going to be it's a very interesting experience of seeing a otherwise unmatched level of influence and cash flow in nfts seeing what you do with that kind of money and i guess it's just buy other shitty nft projects that have a angry community and uh very little outside interest yeah so that sounds like a big Mokia from us. This is this is nice. We did a bunch of Mokia Moknas. We went on a strange, bewildering trip through a quasi-Buddhist AI philosophical little forest there. And then we came back out on the other side to talk about our favorite giant NFT conglomerate, Yuga Labs. Um, 
This felt like a good episode. Let's cap it there. All right, let's do it. Any last words before we uh, wrap us up? Um, I don't know. I left it all. Goldborn Bell leaves it all on the table every time, says his piece and says no more. Never. Yeah, no more last words. It's me who always has another extra thing to add. And the last thing I'll add today is that if you like this podcast, you should give us a five-star rating or review or just give us a subscribe, follow whatever it is on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. We have new podcasts coming out every Tuesday and Friday. We record new podcasts live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. EST, usually around there. We have a Substack you should definitely follow. You can find that at museumofcrypto.substack.com. My name is Max Cohen. His name is Colborn Bell. This has been current events that we might rename to Mokya or Mokna. It remains to be seen. You'll find out next week on another as of yet untitled episode of this Mocha <laughs> podcast. Thank you all so much for being here. We appreciate you and we'll see you soon. Bye. This has been another episode of Current Events with Max and Coborn. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Coborn, as always, for being my co-host. Our intro music was composed by Julian Brangold, so a big thank you to him. And once again, thank you to all of you for being with us. We'll be back soon with another episode of Current Events. So long.